Why do we celebrate when good conquers evil? I mean, when you read history, why do people cheer when an oppressive dictator is removed from power? William Wilberforce abolishing the slave trade. Why is there something in us that says, yes, that was right? In epic stories like Lord of the Rings, why this sense of relief when Sauron and his evil hordes fall? And in the various movies you could probably name right now, I mean, why the satisfaction after the bad guys are defeated and the dissatisfaction when they remain? Because God built into you a sense of right and wrong. He created you as a moral being. We rejoice over the downfall of evil because we have an inner craving to see justice prevail, to see wrongs righted, to see light prevail over darkness. The world is warped by evil, and deep inside, thanks to common grace, we know it. But when things are righted, even in a limited way, when they're righted, we cheer, we celebrate. In Revelation 15, we encounter a scene here where God's people rejoice in the Lord's judgments. God reveals His righteous acts in destroying evil, and those who belong to God, they sing, they rejoice. Read it with me from verses 1 to 8. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, in chapter 15, verse 1, we encounter another uh, sign in heaven. It's now the seventh sign uh, in a series that started back in chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, the last six signs have told a story that stretches from Jesus' ascension into heaven uh, all the way to his return. And these signs help make sense of our present struggle in, in tribulation. Our struggle is one of cosmic war, we have seen, against uh, Satan, the dragon. 
Uh, together with the beast and the false prophet, they form an unholy alliance to, to destroy you. And at the same time, these signs reveal that, that our struggle, our, our holding fast to Jesus is not going to be in vain. The great harvest judgment will come and those who trample God's people will themselves be trampled in God's winepress. Evil will not prevail. Jesus reigns. Jesus will win. That's what we have seen in the last six signs. And now we reach a seventh sign that culminates in worship. In Revelation, each series of seven culminates in worship. If you think about it with me, what followed the seven letters to the seven churches? A throne room scene and all of heaven worshiping the Lamb. What happened following the seven seals? We see the martyrs' prayers ascending before God in worship. And then what about the seven trumpets? At the end of those, 24 elders bow in worship. And now here we find the saints praising the Lord in worship. And so with each series of seven where the Lord is running us to the end, we get these scenes of worship. And what this shows is that the goal of all God's purposes is worship. God inspired this book, not just to tell you that, but to also help you align your life with that goal. If all history is heading towards the worship of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, then let's align our lives now with that goal. That goal also fits how this passage compares, to God, compares God's saving work to a new and greater exodus. A new and greater exodus. Now, we have seen uh, this before in Revelation. For example, chapter 7, verse 4 pictures the church as a kingdom of priests. Uh, in, uh, then, then in chapters 8 to 9, we, we, right, we saw the plagues and how they were... They were comparable to some of the ones we see in Exodus. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 6, God is nourishing his people in the wilderness. And then how could we forget the center of the whole book of Revelation, the true lamb, right? The true Passover lamb of chapter 5, verse 8, whose blood is the payment that frees us from sin. So these themes of Exodus saturate Revelation, and chapter 15 is no exception, to that. I mean, we find priests and we find the tent of witness. Uh, we find plagues that are mentioned. And, and clearest of all, we see God's people who are, who are standing over a sea and they are singing the song of Moses after God defeats their enemies. Now, here's how that connects to the goal of worship. Just as the old Exodus, if you think about God bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and you get to Exodus 15, what happens? After God delivers them in the old Exodus, it culminates in worship. The worship of God's mighty deeds. Right? So it will be the same with the new Exodus. It will culminate in God's worship. God will get glory over His enemies 
but that glory serves the songs of His people. So God means for this vision to fill your heart with praise for His great and amazing deeds. Now that's kind of the big picture of where this fits in. Uh, Let's now draw nearer to the details. John first sees a great and amazing sign, he says. A great and amazing sign. And in Scripture, the word behind amazing usually describes God Himself in the Old Testament or His mighty deeds. And that's also how the saints will use it down in in verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds. What I find interesting, though, is is how this word appears in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, which, again, is the song after God delivers them. But Exodus 15, 11, after destroying Pharaoh and his armies, the, the people seeing this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, there it is, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so we see God is awesome or amazing in glorious deeds. But what does this Exodus 15, 11 sounds like? Who is like you, O Lord? What does it sound like in Revelation? It sounds like the words that we heard the people of the beast shockingly apply to the beast, right? Look at chapter 13, verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4. The people are so amazed by the beast, they say, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Well, by introducing this sign here as a great and amazing sign and drawing from that Exodus 15 11 text that people are applying to the beast, by introducing the sign this way, God is countering the words of his enemies in chapter 13, verse 4. So the world is over here boasting who is like the beast, and God then answers with a sign that undermines their ridiculous words. The beast looks powerful to those on earth, but he's nothing compared to God. In fact, seven angels with seven plagues will soon topple the beast's throne and dash his kingdom to pieces. That's what we will get in chapter 16. But today, he's preparing us for that. This is what he prepares us for in verse 1. Seven angels appear with seven plagues, and these plagues are the last. It says, because with them the wrath of God is finished. And I take that to mean that these these judgments come at the end of history. We'll discuss this more next week when we get into the bowls, the bold judgments. But they are the final display of God's wrath against the beast's kingdom. They bring history to its end and they they prepare the way for Jesus, his return. According to verse 6, these seven angels serve in God's presence. They come from the the heavenly temple. Uh, They also wear bright linen and and, and wear these golden sashes, much like the priests wore in Exodus Exodus 28. And so so their judgments... uh, they, 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 they come from God, and then what you see them doing is serving, like as, serving the worship of God. So these judgments, they don't only come from God, but they serve the worship of God. In verse 7, the seven plagues are then 
represented by seven golden bowls full of God's wrath. Now, these are offering uh, bowls, like the priests would use for grain or wine. And, and that, that could fit uh, with what uh, was said in chapter 14, verse 10, about the nations having to drink the wine of God's wrath. You could also connect this to chapter 5, verse 8, though, which is the, uh, the last time the, this bowl imagery appeared. These are the same word for bowls. And these are the golden bowls that are full of incense, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. The plagues of God's wrath fall because of the saints' prayers. And so the saints are crying for justice. Those cries have been collected in the bowls. And now God is answering by pouring out the bowls. And when, the, when he uses that, that imagery of pouring out the bowls, it simply means he will enact his judgments on earth. They will, they will take place. So uh, verse 8 then adds a, another sobering detail. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues, the seven angels were, were finished. And uh, you might recall this happening a few times in the Old Testament. Right? And at the end of Exodus, they get the temple all built, and the glory of God, the smoke of the glory of God, fills the temple, and it's so thick that Moses is not, can't even enter uh, to, to minister there. First uh, Kings chapter 8. Uh, that was, that was uh, did I say te- temple a minute ago? Tabernacle. That was a tabernacle in the wilderness. The temple then later in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon finishes the temple and the priests, it says, can't stand to enter because of the Lord's glory cloud. And so here's another instance where God is preparing a dwelling place, only this time it will fill the earth. We will see it come in Revelation 21 and 22. But with the the opening of God's temple, the opening of God's temple, John is envisioning the reign of Christ bringing the fullness of God's presence to to earth. But before God dwells on the earth, he has to remove everything that's contrary to his holiness. He's going to come and make the earth his sanctuary, but he must judge what is evil First, uh, in verse 8, there's this sense that once he commissions the angels to judge, there's no turning back the judgment until it is finished. Okay, so, so the, the, the window of intercession is over with, in other words. Okay, when, when he arrives in, in judgment, no one can stand before him. His presence is all too glorious, all too consuming. Now, that's how God introduces the seven bowls. And, and it's terrifying. In fact, when, you, when, we, when we get to these, I mean, some, a lot of these are poured out and, and things, these awful things, circumstances are happening on the earth. Um, and, and also, uh, like we saw with the seals and the trumpets, that the, the, the seals only affected a fourth of the earth. Those judgments, a fourth of the earth. The, the trumpet judgments affected a third of the earth. When we get to the bowls, they affect all the earth. Nobody's... Nobody's escaping, escaping this one. They will affect every domain of the beast's kingdom. Of course, that would raise questions. That would raise questions for the saints who are still on earth when the bold judgments fall. If such terrible judgments will soon be unleashed... What about us? 
What about those who belong to the Lamb? If, if all the world's kingdoms are going to crumble, what will that mean for the Christians still alive when they fall? And I think that's why the Lord gives John such a reassuring vision in verses 2 and 4. Okay? As these, within John's vision, as he's seeing this and, and, the, and the bold judgments begin to unfold, it's, it's like the Lord pauses to speak relief to his people. Like, I'm going to pour these out, but wait, here, here's, here's what you need to see. He reassures the church, still on earth, that God will see them through and bring them into the same experience as those who've gone before. Visions of the church in heaven provide assurance for the church on earth. You are the church on earth. You are facing tribulation from the beast. And the church will continue to face tribulation until Jesus returns. That's what we learned in chapters 12 to 13. We are in the wilderness of tribulation. It's not easy being a Christian, especially in a world that hates Christ. I mean, we have seen throughout chapters 12 to, 12 to 14 that there's a dragon out there. Right? There are beasts out there in this wilderness, and they don't play nicely. We've seen that they use military power, and they use political influence, and they use false religion uh, and deception and economic pressure and worldly attractions and physical persecution, all to pressure you to give up on Jesus. And there are days when you're probably asking, Lord, I don't know how we're going to make it. That's the, the real struggle of the church on earth. But, but look here. I want you to look here at, verses, at the vision of verses 1 to do. In Christ, you belong to the people of verses 2 to 4 here. You belong to this people. They have gone before you, right? They haven't reached uh, the eternal state, right? The resurrection has yet to occur. They're in the intermediate state, awaiting their resurrection bodies, awaiting the new heaven and the new earth, but their experience coming out of tribulation into God's presence is glorious. And it anticipates what we will enjoy forever. Seeing them in heaven gives us hope to endure while we're still on earth. So first, this vision assures that that when you stay faithful to Jesus, you will be safe before God. When you stay faithful to Jesus, you will be safe before God. Screen's working? Good. It's not working down here. That's why I'm glad you're getting it. Um, verse 2. Verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire... And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside or over the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, we've heard of this sea of glass before. 
in chapter 4, verse 6, the sea of glass is before the throne of God. It says, before God's throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is chapter 4, verse 6. This is the same sea. So this is before, right before God's throne, in God's presence. Of course, it also says that this sea is mingled with fire. Now, perhaps that anticipates the judgments that will soon come in chapter 16, but I think the fire has to do more with God's presence reflecting off the water, reflecting off the sea. In chapter 4, verse 5, what do we see? So chapter 4, verse 6 describes the sea of glass, but right before that, in chapter 4, verse 5, what did we see? We saw seven torches burning with fire before God's throne. And then chapter 4, verse 6 mentions the sea of glass. So the the seven torches are the seven spirits of God, which we discuss as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so those who give their lives for Jesus are going to end up here, not only before God's presence, but, but consumed with the reflection of His radiant glory. But there's still even more. Why is it a sea of glass? Why is it described that way? As it were, a sea of glass... Have you ever gone to the edge of a lake on a still morning and the water is is so calm, it looks like a mirror, like glass? This sea isn't like the sea that we saw back in chapter 13, verse 1, where a dragon is stirring up the waters for a beast to come out and wreak havoc on the earth. Here, the saints stand over the sea and there's not a ripple of any evil. There's only the reflection of God's beauty. Their great shepherd has stilled the waters. And they are safe now. Nothing is going to threaten them. That's the picture. So first, they are safe before God. Second, stay faithful to Jesus and you will also be victorious over the beast. Victorious over the beast. These saints, standing with harps of God are not, how did did you put it, Aaron, this week? They are not the chubby babies of cultural Christian folklore. Right? These are sacrificial conquerors standing before uh, God's throne, victorious. They have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, meaning... They have stood their ground, right? They refused to bow to the beast's authority. They stuck with Jesus when the world was pressuring them to give up or to make that compromise. 
Uh, back in chapter 12, verse 1, we learn how someone conquers. You conquer, it says, by the blood of the Lamb. So you conquer by holding fast to Christ and what Christ achieved for you on the cross. You conquer by the word of your testimony and not loving your life even unto death. So when we lose our lives for Jesus' sake, we conquer. Uh, Now, from the world's perspective, dying for the gospel looks stupid and weak, right? And and, uh, like you're losing. But what Jesus is showing here is actually that's how we win. That's, that's how we gain victory over the beast. Look, look where you will stand. I mean, God has them by a sea, much like Israel stood over the sea when God defeated Pharaoh and his armies. And, and look how they sing the song of Moses. Again, John is borrowing from, from Exodus here to depict what our salvation is like. God worked mightily through Moses, right, to rescue Israel from, from Egypt He conquered their foes. In Exodus 15, we then learn the song of Moses. We hear the song of Moses. Because of God's deliverance, they all sing together. They rejoice. But why does John call it here also the song of the Lamb? They sing the song of Moses and and the song of the Lamb. Why is he uh, combining those two? Because the first Exodus deliverance anticipated a new and greater exodus deliverance right the lamb jesus christ is greater than moses he is god incarnate he comes to lead his people out of the much deeper slavery the slavery to sin he came to give his life as a lamb and and through that lamb's blood we then escape the uh, we escape the plagues of god's judgment Through that Lamb's blood, we are welcomed into God's presence into a new and better kingdom. If you think about where we've been in Hebrews before as well, Moses didn't go into the promised land. Right? Jesus has entered the true and greater promised land because he fulfills the law. Right? And now he's already there. And he's and as our forerunner. Jesus is victorious over the beast, and he's leading all of his people home to the new and better promised land, the, the new Jerusalem. Which is why we also see the saints in heaven enthralled in worship. That's the third thing we see that uh, they're, they're enthralled in worship. Now, to this point in Revelation, that's been one of the biggest struggles, right? The, the struggle of worship. Who are you going to worship? Worship God and the Lamb? Or are you going to worship the beast? The world is largely duped by the beast. We've seen the world's riches and its power and its pressure seduce many people from worshiping God. Sometimes, sometimes its attractions will, will even start grabbing the heart of a Christian, right? We saw this in uh, the church in Laodicea. They were straying. They were far too easily pleased with the world. But I want you to notice here, those who see God, there's never a question of who's worthy of worship. And that's true throughout the Bible. 
When people see God, there's no question of who's worthy of worship. Those who see God know he's truly great. And so they sing here, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Now that title, Almighty, is often used as a substitute for the phrase God of hosts. You see in the, in the Old Testament, he, he rules the countless hosts of heaven, right? And, and he is the one who is, who is uh, unmatched in, in power. He exceeds all, all others. He alone does the truly amazing deeds like, you know, creating the world um, and, and things like that, uh, getting, getting them out of, the ex, uh, out of, out of Egypt. Uh, and then, of course, in Revelation, we're, we're seeing these great and amazing deeds. Well, what, what do those include? Well, some of them include what we've just what we've been reading about in chapters 12 to 13 and 14, right? The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the blood of the Lamb that saves from sin, the, the enthronement of Jesus uh, uh, in heaven and the victory that he declares over, over Satan and the gathering of God's le- elect at the end and, and the judgment of our enemies. All of these are his great and amazing deeds. And so they praise him. And then adding to that, he says... Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. And an angel will then echo these words in chapter 16, verse 7. And the altar will do the same thing. uh, Chapter 16, verse 5. And then the altar will do the same thing in chapter 16, verse 7. And there it becomes clearer that God's judgments are in view. And so this song not only culminates what what we've seen in chapter 12 to 14, it's also looking forward to chapter 16. Uh, and the judgments that will come there. Just and true are your ways, O king of the nation. These words sound a lot like Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, uh, which says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God alone can judge The nations, because he alone is without iniquity. There is nothing in God's nature that's tainted with evil. He is goodness. No one can question his judgment. They go on and declare uh, more. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The answer implied here is no one. All must bow. Why? And then he gives three reasons. One, for you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. I've used these words uh, of David Wells before. They're great uh, in his book, God and the Whirlwind. Um, he talks about God's holiness in terms of his, his, majestic, his majestic otherness. Right? We see this in places like Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, uh, where you see him high and lifted up, seated on his throne. He's, there is, his holiness consists of his majestic otherness, and it also consists of his moral otherness, right? When Isaiah sees the Lord, what, is it, what happens? Woe is me, right? For I'm a man of unclean lips. So God is set apart from the world in this transcendent splendor, in his moral and majestic otherness. That's one reason they worship. They also sing that all nations will come and worship you. That's another reason to glorify his name. And this reaches back to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10. And in, what's, what's really cool about Psalm 86 is that the enemies, that enemies have set themselves against God's anointed king, uh, David. 
And uh, David is crying out to the Lord, and what becomes clear in David's prayer is that God is known to work wonders for his king. He's he's not like the gods of the nations that can't deliver their kings from death. No, the the Lord is is much different. God, God can deliver his king from death. And by doing so, it leads people from all nations to worship him. So it's a theme that pervades the Psalms, Uh, Psalm 22, the same Psalm where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Psalm, it ends after God vindicates his king, right? Raises him up. It, It ends like this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all of the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So in Revelation, what we've seen is Jesus is God's anointed king. Jesus is the lion from Judah, right? Enemies, we see this in Revelation, enemies set themselves against Jesus and surround him. But God works mightily through Jesus' cross and then his resurrection to win a people from all nations. That's the story Revelation's been telling. Now, not every person comes to worship Jesus, some remain committed to the beast, and we'll see that next week. But there is a countless multitude from every nation that does come, and they will bow to Jesus. And so they celebrate here. They they say that God is worthy of of worship for this reason. And then the last reason they glorify the Lord's name, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so the revelation of God's righteous acts leads to the adoration of God's character. All his acts in salvation and judgment are righteous. So when he rights all wrongs, his people celebrate. The church in heaven knows him to be faithful. They see this clearly. They are before his throne, and their song is meant to encourage you while you're still on earth. Brothers and sisters, while you struggle through tribulation on earth, God is holding out this picture, this vision for you. He's holding out this hope for you in heaven. Your struggle on earth is great. I mean, the world sets itself against you. On top of that, you've got the brokenness of all the relationships around you, and, and some days it's, it's exasperating or discouraging. Sometimes you find yourself in situations that are beyond your control, you're forced to face your own inability to, to deliver yourself or to, deliver, or to deliver others. Some of you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death with loved ones suffering. On top of that, the devil prowls around like, like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. And in a tribulation like this on earth, the waters are all but calm. There are ripples of evil everywhere. And many times they feel more like waves with a strong undertow. But for those who belong to the Lamb, this is God's gift of assurance to you. If you follow the Lamb, these are your people here. Right? Now, you haven't joined them yet. 
in heaven, but you're already part of these sacrificial conquerors. Cling to Jesus, resist the beast, and you too will be safe in God's presence, victorious over the beast, and you will be enthralled in his worship. Perhaps you are here and you don't find much assurance in this vision like, like that. You, instead, you, you find yourself actually terrified of the seven plagues that are coming. God's judgment haunts you. You think, how could I ever stand before God and singing like this? I've strayed too far. I have no hope of working my way back here. But let me tell you about God's grace. In this vision, those who are safe in God's presence, they don't get there by their own doing. They got there because of God's doing. Jesus is the Lamb who freed them from their sins, washed away uh, all of their guilt. Chapter 7, verse verse 14, we already saw this. Those who are coming out of the great tribulation, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So God welcomes them into his presence on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' blood has cleansed them, and Jesus' blood can also cleanse you. The picture of those safe in God's presence, that can be you one day. So without Jesus, you have no hope. But with Jesus, you have every hope. Right? Trust in Jesus Christ and this vision will not be a terror of future judgment. It will be assurance for future joy in God's presence with the waters calmed. And for those of you who do belong to Jesus, be careful that you're not too easily pleased in this world. Right? Laodicea is hearing this. Laodicea is listening to this message. Don't get me wrong. The Lord created us to be amazed. Right? He he doesn't throw the stars in the heaven and fashion the Grand Canyon to bore you. Like, you were created to be amazed. You were created to celebrate and, and wonder and marvel. The problem just comes when we trade the creator for the creation. The problem comes when we find his creatures more amazing than than God himself. I mean, this is why we can stay glued to a game for four plus hours. Was it 15 innings this week for Cleveland? And Like, that's, that's, that's a long time to be sitting in front of a game. We could do this. And then we get our Bibles, and we're bored, and we're distracted. Or we we sit down to pray, and five minutes in, we're wondering, what what do I say now? Right? It's easy to get too easily pleased with this world. There are many amazing things in the world. Including, to a very small degree, a walk-off home run in the bottom of the 15th inning. That's pretty amazing. 
But this vision gives those lesser amazing things a context, right? It reminds us God is infinitely more amazing. He's incomparable in might. His deeds are unmatched. His mighty acts cause all nations to bow. He is holy. He is the true king of all. He is just. He is worthy of all worship. Trust the testimony of the ones who already see him. We've already gone before. And join all heaven in worshiping the Lord. That's where he's, he's moving all of history. Even his judgments will lead you to sing. He will conquer all evil and he will judge it completely. His good will prevail over darkness. And for this we will celebrate. Until that day comes, let this vision help you conquer. Okay? Seven times in the letters to the churches, Jesus said, To the one who conquers, I will give. Right. To the one who conquers, I will give. To the one who conquers, I will give. And we saw there that conquering has to do with this long-standing obedience to Jesus in the face of opposition. Opposition like false religion, false gods, false ideas. Opposition like economic pressure to deny Jesus. Opposition like worldly attractions and, and distractions. Opposition like physical persecution and threats. Now, how do you keep conquering with all that coming at you on earth. You keep setting your sights in heaven. Look at the saints who are triumphant. Look where they stand. Hear what they sing. And consider the one who is all glorious. Paul is right. I mean, when you read passages like this in Revelation, Paul is right. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the Lamb's people, this vision is good news. It's good news because it, it reminds us that the Lamb wins. We will sing His song. It's good news because God is King of the nations and He will make all nations bow to Jesus. It's good news that God is righteous in all that He does. He is the one ruler that we can trust and we can look to to make the world right again. It's good news because when we give our lives for Jesus, it shows the comfort and the joy that we will experience immediately in God's presence. In many ways, Revelation is a book of assurance for a suffering church. And chapter 15 is adding to that assurance by showing us the church in heaven safe, victorious, and singing. It's good news because in the face of our worst fears, even death itself, God proves that He is stronger. And that He can see us through, and He can see us through our suffering. He can keep us through our suffering. How do you think these people got there? Grace, keeping them and preserving them through their trials so that they end up before Him in glory. It's good news because when His judgments are finished, His sanctuary in heaven will be one with earth. So let's continue to preach this good news to ourselves as we come to the Lord's Supper now. Trey, come lead us.